This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Thank you for finding us again. No Stop Lights. want to thank our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Fins, Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, Francis Marion University, McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victor's PLC Commercial. Before I introduce our next guest, I want to remind our, our viewers and listeners that uh, we've evolved. We've transitioned from a podcast that was somewhat of an extension of a conservative radio show. I mean, it was more Trump and Biden, more Democrat and Republican. Um, I was asked to consider by some community leaders uh, whether I would be involved in, I, I don't say a local media endeavor, but I, I guess would I be the letter to the editor section of a um, of a place that is somewhat become a media desert. Uh, thank God the Post and Courier has made a big commitment here, and um, and we'll all we'll all benefit greatly from the Post and Courier investing in the PD region. Uh, if you remember the newspaper, the letter to the editor was not a journalistic endeavor. It was more of an opinion of a, a reader. Uh, we're kind of the editorial section or the letter to the editor section of the local media. Um, but we, I mean, we'll have serious podcasts, and one of those very serious podcasts will be today. Um, in, in, the, in the trials and tribulations of hosting a radio show, there have been two particular issues that have taken more intellectual horsepower than I have available. Um, I mean, I can talk Trump and Biden with the best of them. I can talk conservative and liberal with the best of them. I remember the day I began trying to understand the Federal Reserve. And as I delved off into trying to better understand the Fed, I got about ankle deep in the water and I began to grasp and understand and make heads or tails. I got about knee deep and I said, okay, I'm about to figure this out. I got waist deep and I realized the more I knew, the less I believed, or the more I knew, the less I realized, or I got more confused as, um, I mean, the Fed's kind of this unique animal in government, but out of government, sets monetary policy, sets the interest rate, uh, keeps up with inflation. Uh, it's, it's kind of half government, half not. The other issue that has confounded me and has stirred my curiosity in a way that hardly anything has is the situation in Israel. Uh, I'll make no bones about it. It is easier for me to say that I don't really care about additional funding going to Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't try to defend my stance. I don't try to say, well, it's because of X, Y, or Z. I am I bought into this uh, anti-intervention streak in the Republican Party, and, and I'm candid about it. I, mean, I, I think the days of neoconservatism are not gone, but but I wonder, I wonder how effective the neoconservative era in American politics. So the Republicans were, by and large, the hawks when it came to what to do in what part of the world, uh, what American resource, whether human or, or, or financial or military equipment were to be invested in certain parts of the world. So, so I have, I mean, I, I'm, I'm somewhat of a convert. I guess Tucker Carlson would be the most infamous uh, convert from a neocon to a kind of a non-interventionist America first uh, Republican. And it's kind of easy for me to take a pass on, on Ukraine. But Israel's different. And, and the reason Israel's different is not because I understand the geopolitics a lot better than I do in Ukraine and the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I know as much as I've studied and tried to understand, but I am, I mean, I, I'm a Christian and I have a biblical worldview. I ascribe to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, that almost makes it impossible for me to look at Israel in the same light 
that I look at um, at Ukraine. Um, I believe the Jewish people are God's chosen. Uh, I'm not Jewish. My next guest is a Jewish, and he's a professor of history at Francis Marion University. I've asked him to join us. He is a, um, but he had a lot of complications with his schedule and couldn't uh, be on the radio. But at one point in time, Scott Coppin was a, a frequent guest of our radio show and always acquitted himself well and is very knowledgeable about the world around him. Um, and when I reached out to Scott, I, I knew that, that when the events of October 6 and 7 transpired, there was one guy that I was going to hunt down and and then force him, <laughs> bribe him, do whatever I had to do to get him come on our, our podcast, and he's agreed today. Scott Coppin, professor of history at Francis Marion University. Sir, how are you? Fine. How are you doing? So so I want to, I mean, I, I'm going to ramble a bit, and you got to stick with me. I mean, you're the academic. You have a scholarly understanding of world history. You're Jewish. Yes. Does that make you as a historian pay closer attention to that part of the world? It definitely has an impact. Um, when those events happened on October 7th, it hit home very hard. Um, I, the shock, the anger I felt because of what this was doing to people of my faith. And it was difficult for me to try to separate the part of me that has to be the dispassionate historian who looks at the facts and the member of a community who has faced um, anti-Semitism, who lost members of his family in the Holocaust. And so it, it really hit home hard. And I have looked in this more myself to try to understand what might drive what happened on October 7th to occur. And, you know, it's, it's a learning experience, but I still am having a very hard time coming to grips with it to understand why anyone would do what they did. Okay, Scott, my understanding, once again, is, is, is biblically tinted. I make no bones about that. I believe that, that, that the God of Abraham was the first Jew. And I believe that Israel was the Jewish province. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At some point in time, the God of Abraham, Abraham comes along. He's the first Jew, and Israel belongs to the Jewish people. Well, God had promised, okay. yes, uh, and Abraham and, uh, was the patriarch. Sure, and, and we fast forward to King David, a thousand or roughly a thousand B.C. Um, but then it gets confusing. you got the Ottoman Empire. You've got the British Mandate. Um, you've got colonization, you've got the West Bank and Gaza. Walk me through the cliff note. I mean, I don't have time for a six-week lesson <laughs> on, on that, but I mean, if you don't mind, walk me through from the God of Abraham or, or Abraham to um, today, or really until 1948. Okay. Um, well, this could take a few hours. Well, I mean, so. no, well, I mean <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you as brief sure. an understanding as possible. Yes, and, and I mean, don't I mean, be but so brief because this but is important. In Genesis, I mean, God said to Abraham, this is your land. Uh, and it's land that the Jews fought for, fought to win control of or to win that land that belonged to them. Um, and that's one of the claims that Jews today have to that part of the world is because of that, that biblical 
uh, granting of that land, of Palestine, to the Jews. But you also had Palestinians there who said, time out, this land belongs to us. We've been here for a very long time as well, and you can't say this belongs to you. Um, you fast forward, and I'll, I'm going to go very fast forward here, to the Ottoman Empire, which you mentioned. Which would have been when? This would have been, oh gosh, the Ottoman Empire goes back to the, what, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, 20th century. Uh, but it had, it had, over time, it had uh, gotten smaller and smaller. Bits and pieces of it had, had fallen off, had rebelled against it. And so it, wasn't nearly, it was nearly, not, not nearly as large as it had been in years past. But by 19, by World War I, when the Ottoman Empire joined the enemies of the Triple Entente, which included the United States, the Ottoman Empire did include what is modern-day Turkey, as well as a number of other areas, including, including Palestine. Uh, as punishment for um, its role in World War I, the Allies decided that parts of the Ottoman Empire be taken from it and given to other nations as mandates to be controlled by them. The British got control of Palestine. And one, of the, uh, one British official, a British Foreign Secretary by the name of Arthur Balfour, had said in 1917 to the Jews that we are going to create a Jewish state for you in Palestine. The problem was that the Arabs living in Palestine, the Palestinians, didn't agree with that idea. They said, no, this is not going to happen. And the end result was that you had growing animosity between the Jews and the Palestinians. What also added on to it was the growing number of Jews living in Palestine, Jews who were escaping the pogroms in Russia, where they're being um, thrown out of their villages, uh, beaten, even killed. The, those of you who've seen Fiddler on the Roof, uh, which has a pogrom as one of the major themes there, and of course the Holocaust. And so the Jewish population increases from about, uh, in 1917, about 8% of the people living in Palestine were Jewish. By about 1946, it was about 30% were Jewish. So you have these rival claims taking place and more animosity, more violence between Jews and Arabs. Uh, the British, meanwhile, are trying to maintain control of the situation, but they have their own problems to deal with. They are recovering from World War II. They don't have the money to deal with Palestine, to deal with what's happened in all of their colonies, to rebuild, for, rebuild at home, and finally just said, look, we're done. Uh, we can't take this anymore. We're going to turn this issue over to the United Nations. And the United Nations stepped in and said, we're going to go ahead and create a Palestinian state and as well as a Jewish state. And just to make it very quickly here, Palestinians said, no, um, we believe that all of Palestine belongs to us. We don't support the idea of a Jewish state here. Meanwhile, Jews said, fine, we're going to go ahead and declare a Jewish state, Israel, which they did in 1948. That led to the first of several wars between Israel and its Arab neighbors, wars that displaced many Palestinians who now find themselves living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So the West Bank and Gaza Strip came as a result. Who declared the Gaza Strip legitimate? Who declared the West Bank legitimate? Well, what do you mean? I, I guess means, what, what do you mean by the term legitimate? Well, I mean, to, to begin with, the West Bank and Gaza Strip were part of the Jewish state. Palestine. Palestine. Yes. Okay. And, and then in 1948, the United Nations declares Israel the Jewish state, the Jewish homeland. Uh, President Truman, if I'm not mistaken, was the first official to, to, to recognize United Israel. Was, yes. Uh, Israel in 1948. So when the United Nations declared Israel and, and Truman recognizes Israel, 
Where are the Palestinians living then? Well, the Palestinians are living in what is today Palestine, would include, would include Israel. Uh, but these wars between Israel and its Arab neighbors displaced many of them. So some of them ended up in the Gaza Strip, which after 1940, for a time after 1948... Who said it's been, okay to be in the Gaza Strip? Well, keep in mind... After the 1948 war, the Gaza Strip was controlled by Egypt. Okay. So you have Palestinians who were going there. The West Bank, including East Jerusalem, was controlled by Jordan. So you had Palestinians who were going there. And Israel's okay with that, Scott? Well, I mean, the idea is you want to provide as much security for yourself as you can. So for the Israelis, yeah, I mean, certainly there were Israelis who, who wanted to have peace with the Palestinians. But if if displacement is what's going is is the is the ultimate result of this, if that's going to lead to your security, uh, then there were those Israelis who said, "Look, if this is going to guarantee our security, then that's what we're going to have to have to accept." Um, but you had additional wars in 1967 and 1973. The 67 war is the most important of them because that led to Jewish to to Israeli control over the Gaza Strip, Israeli control over East Jerusalem, as well as the West Bank. And so then, then the issue for, uh, for Israel became, how do we deal with these Palestinian populations? Um, and one of the ideas was, well, one of the fears of, the, of Jews has been historically, if we allow those large populations of Palestinians into Israel itself, because of the higher birth rate among Palestinians, plus the, higher, the greater population of Palestinians that will ultimately uh, accrue, that the state of Israel could be gone. And so Israel has been, has restricted uh, the number of Palestinians who are living in Israel itself. You do have an, a Palestinian-Israeli population, but it's relatively small. Uh, most Palestinians, five million of them total, live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So what two-state solution do the majority of Jews support? Well, and that's the tough question. Uh, there was a proposal in 1993 called the Oslo Accords, which would have achieved a two-state solution whereby um, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank would have been part of this larger Palestinian state. And that was supported by a significant number of Jews, both within Israel and outside of it. But there were Jews who opposed that agreement, including Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who's the current prime minister of Israel, who said that, as far as he was concerned, all of Palestine belonged to the Jewish population. But you also had Palestinians who opposed the agreement, arguing this would make Palestinians subservient to Israel, that, for instance, to get between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, they would have to have Israeli permission to do that, given the two are separated, and that was not fair to them. Ultimately, what ended up killing at the Kozlo Accords, aside from that opposition, the biggest thing that, I, th in my opinion, that it killed it was when a right-wing Jew ended up killing the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, who was one of the parties to the Oslo Accords. And after that, things began to go downhill. What is a right-wing Jew? Well, I, that's where we can have a big debate. Uh, from, my, from my point of view, it is someone who is strongly unwilling to compromise with the Palestinians, someone who was determined to have Jews have control of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, um, someone who sees the Palestinians as enemies. Um, now, there are going to be individuals, of course, who consider themselves right-wing, are going to say, I do not agree with that uh, generalization, um, but I can tell you that I have heard 
Jews uh, argue those kinds of things, that we cannot live with these Palestinians, this belong, these lands, they call it Judea and Samaria, these lands belong to Israel, and uh, we are not going to compromise with these individuals. Is Netanyahu a right-winger? I consider him that, yes. Does Netanyahu desire for Israel, first of all, is Israel a theocracy? No. Does Netanyahu wish Israel a theocracy? I would not say he, he wishes a theocracy. Uh, that would be a, a state that is run by a religious group. Um, what I do think, though, is that he has certain designs on the Israeli government to move it away from a democracy to one that would, be, would give him far more power. Uh, his plan, for instance, would to weaken the judiciary which he was trying to, which he's been trying to implement, and that caused outrage in, in Israel as an example of that. Do the Palestinians support a two-state solution? There are those, yes. I mean, we have to keep in mind that when we talk about the Palestinians, sure. they're not all one group. Um, you have, for instance, well, there's a number of groups. The two biggest ones are Hamas, who control the Gaza Strip, and Fatah, who are in control of the West Bank. It was Fatah that strongly supported the Oslo Accords. It was Hamas that strongly opposed the Oslo Accords. So you do have Palestinians who are willing to accept and work toward a two-state solution, but you also have those who say no. Is Fatah a terrorist organization? Yes. Oh, Fat Fatah. Excuse me, Fatah, no. And you no. know where I'm headed here. Yeah. I mean, but, but so, so Fatah would be a, a, a group of Palestinians— willing to consider compromise with Jews. Fatah was a, is a political organization that was formed in the late 1950s and eventually became the main driving force behind the Palestine Libera Liberation Organization that was founded in 1964. And yes, the PLO did engage in terrorist activities. But the PLO over time became willing to moderate its position insofar as seeking a political agreement with Israel. Hamas did not. Um, Hamas was founded in 1988 by a guy named... Um, uh, oh, shoot. His last name's Yassin. And his position is, you cannot negotiate with Israel. We've got to destroy the Israeli state and make sure that all of Palestine is under uh, Palestinian control. And that means using terrorism and other acts of violence. So if, if, if there are good and decent Palestinians, and I believe that and you believe that, why would Hamas be the government of Gaza? Well, there was a civil war that took place between the Palestinians in 2006 and Hamas won that civil war in the Gaza Strip. Fatah remained con contain, maintained control over the West Bank, but, Fata, but uh, Fata, Fata, the West Bank, but Hamas gained control of the Gaza Strip. And one thing that, that Hamas has done is, is, in a way, Hamas has acted like a, a mafia organization because they claim that they're offering all kinds of help to the Palestinians, uh, jobs, uh, medical care, um, uh, other, other concessions, if you will, to get their support. But in fact, really, if you look at who holds the power, who's getting all the money, how the money's being used, it's Hamas that's benefiting the most. You don't know the answer to this, nor do I. But do you suspect when, when Hamas is elected by the Palestinians to be the government of Gaza, they show with a ballot and a machete? And people vote under threat or fear. Is that is that a fair characterization or an accurate characterization? Well, there'd be those individuals who support Hamas no matter what. Okay. But there are those who are but fearful. But those are terrorists. Fearful. I do remember, I, just recently, just a few days ago, I remember watching a news report, and there was a Palestinian woman who was blaming Hamas for what was happening in the Gaza Strip. 
And I remember the report, the news reporter saying that she was taking a huge risk by making that argument because Hamas does not stand for that kind of opposition. What is anti-Semitism hatred born of, of? What's it born of? Oh, what, what gosh. Is it? I mean, I understand what it is. It's a hatred of Jews. I had a debate this morning with, or this afternoon with a Jewish friend of mine, and, and we talked about racism and, and hatred. And Scott, I've said this before, and you probably heard me say this. I am a Southern white man. I've been around racism all my life. I've not been around a lot of hatred. I mean, to me, anti-Semitism is not racism. It's hatred. What, what drives that hatred? What did the Jews do to, 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 to create the animus and anger and hatred that Hamas and Hezbollah have? Well... The, the the belief that the Jews are stealing from the Arab world, stealing from Palestinians what is rightfully theirs. Colonization. If you want to use that argument, fine, but, but yeah, that this belongs to them. Um, outside of that argument, we've seen the belief that Jews are a bunch of greedy individuals who will steal and take from others, that they are linked to communism, um, that they control everything, they have the power, uh, look at arguments coming from the Nazis, look at arguments coming out of Russia, uh, from anti-Semites here in this country. Um, it, it's, I, it's hard for me to understand what drives that, but it's been out there for generations. It's, it's a hatred so intense that a group of people cross into the country of another and behead children and burn disabled females in their beds. I mean, that, that's just, it's unfathomable. It's barbaric. It's heartbreaking. It's, but, 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 and, and, and I, and I want to go from here. There are people around the world now advising the Jews to ah, slow down a bit, a ceasefire. Um, allow some humanitarian corridor for people to get out of there. If, if one group of people despise or hate another group of people that much, what does a ceasefire accomplish? I mean, does this hatred simmer if we have a day or two to, to think about it? For me, the ceasefire would give an opportunity for foreigners to get out, uh, to bring humanitarian aid, hopefully, to those who really need it, not to those who would misuse it. Um, and maybe, possibly, show the world that Israel is not out to destroy the Palestinian people. Um, is Netanyahu but, out to destroy the Palestinian no, no, people? No, uh, I don't think he's out to do that at all. And, and you're, you're a critic of, of Netanyahu. I'm a very much a critic of Netanyahu. I've not been a fan of his, but I don't think that's his intention. I think what his intention is, well, it's clear what he said his intention is. It's to root out Hamas, to destroy Hamas. Is that possible? That's going to be very difficult. And this is one of the reasons also why there's a lot of concern is let's say Hamas number is about 30,000, the estimate is. Let's say you kill all 30,000 of them. Have you created a situation in which those individuals who have lost their homes and lost anything, everything, are they going to become the next Hamas? I think that's another reason why there's this call for the ceasefire. Let's see if we can find some kind of a settlement that doesn't push even more Palestinians into the arms of those who would engage in future acts of terrorism against Israel. But ultimately, it's going to be Israel that makes these decisions. How complicit is Iran? Very. In what way? 
numerous ways. But um, Iran has long been a supporter of Hezbollah and Hamas. Wow. Um, there are a number of reasons. Number one, there are religious reasons. Iran is a Shiite nation. These are Shiite movements. We have to keep in mind that the Muslim world are not all the Muslims are divided into various sects. The two largest are those who believe in Sunni, Muslim, Sunni Islam, which is the largest group. About 80 to 90 percent of, of Muslims are believers in Sunni Islam. And then Shia, which is between 10 and 20 percent. Iran is a Shia nation, and it supports the Shia movements. What Iran is also, another reason why Iran is behind this is Iran does want to see the destruction of Israel. I, I mean, they've said that many times, and they're willing to support these groups as part of that effort. But one of the things that's driving Iran is Iran is afraid of being isolated. We have to keep in mind Iran has been developing a nuclear program. The fear is that this program could be used to develop nuclear weapons. That is frightening many nations in the region, and many, and many of these nations are Sunni countries, nations that before Iran was developing this program, had signed treaties with, with Israel for peace treaties like Egypt and Jordan. But that effort, that movement of signing peace agreements with Israel had sped up in recent years. Bahrain, Oman, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other countries. There's a couple of the United Arab Emirates had all signed uh, normalization agreements with Israel. And Saudi Arabia, which is probably the lead Sunni nation in the world, was on the verge of doing that as well. So I have no doubt that the Iranians encouraged Hamas to launch this attack in the name of in the in, in the hopes of scuttling any effort by Israel and Saudi Arabia to reach an agreement that would normalize relations between the Is two the of them. Is the Shia Muslim world compatible with Western culture and society? I mean, what what is Sharia law? Explain Sharia law to our, to well, our, our viewers. And that's a tough one for me to, to explain. It's, it's a theo, it's a theo, theocratic way of looking at the world. Um, you uh, and I uh, would be infidels. Uh, the interpretation of the Quran that the Shias have, it's it's a pretty radical interpretation. But you and I would be infidels. Well, I think it depends who you're talking about. We have to be very cautious here to say that all believers in Shia would see us as infidels. Fair enough. Just like it would be fair enough wrong to say all. But would you agree the majority of terrorists come from the Shia I've, sect of the faith? I would say, yes, that is the case, but don't forget we did have the individuals who launched 9-11 who had ties to Saudi Arabia, uh, who were Sunni. So there are those individuals who come from other, the other major sect of Islam. But certainly there are many who, who believe in the Shia faith who are prepared to use terrorism against the United States, Israel, and those who support them. So if if the if the majority here's my problem, Scott, and, and, I, and I want to get your take on this because you're far more versed in this than I am. Here's what concerns me. When and I and I would never ever say that the Jews are blameless. I don't think you would. No. I would never say the Americans are blameless. I, I would never say that you know um, all of this controversy and conflict and 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 human loss is is all about the Muslim faith incompatible with Western culture and society. But it does alarm me and concern me that when something as horrific as October six happens, the Muslim world is slow to condemn. Does that concern you? I'm not, I'm not I'm not making an accusation that Muslims endorse terrorism, but it, but it seems to be very quiet when, when Jews are killed or Americans are killed. Does that concern you? It does, but it's interesting as well. We don't see these countries, a lot of these countries coming out and saying, go, go Hamas. Uh, Saudi Arabia certainly has not. 
Um, Turkey, which has tried to maintain ties with the Palestinians, yes, they're very upset with the Israelis, but they've, Turkey and Israel have had a, a love-hate relationship for a very long time. Uh, and some of these other Arab nations have been very quiet as well about supporting Hamas. So I think the, what's going on here is these Arab nations, yes, they are not happy with what Israel's doing. They realize that if they were to condemn Hamas, that it could turn members of the Arab world against them. But the fact that they have not gone rah, rah, go, go Hamas is also an indication that they clearly see that the, the Iranian hand here, and they don't want to do anything that's going to support an organization that they see as a real threat to their interests. How important is the relationship Israel has with the United States? Highly important. What is the most important part of that relationship? Uh, we're the, they're our number one ally in the Middle East, which is a, a vitally important, vitally strategic part of the world. Has been, still is. Maybe not as much as it used to be, given how the U.S. has become more uh, self-sufficient when it comes to petroleum, uh, but still a very, very important part of the world. How offended is the Arab nations or are the Arab nations at our providing high-grade military armaments to Israel? Well, I think it would depend which Arab nations we're talking about. Uh, certainly the Iranians are no, not fans of it, uh, but it's very interesting when you see that Saudi Arabia and Israel behind the scenes, long before this attack occurred, behind the scenes were looking at working together and, and, and against Iran, uh, sharing information, uh, and even talking about normalizing relations. Other than Iran, what are the other anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic Arab nations? And I'm not accusing every Muslim, nor am I accusing every Arab, and you're not. But, but it, it seems to me Qatar, it seems to me Syria, and it seems to me Iran. Am I close? Syria has had, well, obviously Syria has had a very tough relationship with Israel because Israel occupies the Golan Heights, which it's occupied since 1967 and which Israel, which uh, Syria claims. Qatar's a trickier situation. Uh, the Qatari government does have a large minority of Shia population. Uh, but the Qataris have also, their Qataris also have a, a relationship with the United States. And they have been trying to achieve the release of the hostages that are being held by Hamas. So I think the Qataris are trying to play both sides of the coin. They're trying to, on the one hand, not lose the relationship they have with the Shia world, uh, not lose the relationship they have with Hamas, but at the same time, not lose the relationship they have with the United States. Um, and so I see them kind of as trying to play the role of middlemen, if anything else. That's not to say that there aren't Qataris who are supportive of Israel. Um, there probably are. Uh, but the Qataris, I think, are... are playing, really trying to play out the, the middleman here. I mean, you don't have an answer to this, and I certainly don't. What, what is the answer to terrorism? What, what is the answer, answer to Islamic jihadist? I can't think of one. I mean, terrorism goes probably as far back as humans have been on this planet. And you're always going to have those individuals who, for one reason or another, are going to hate others and are prepared to use acts of terror against them. And I don't know how you stop that, uh, because no matter how much, you, how much information you have out there, how much you try to provide individuals with an understanding that there's more than one side of things and, and to I try to accept others, there are always going to be those individuals who say, nope, can't do it. 
we're real bad as Americans, arrogant Americans. You know, we've got Catholics and we've got Baptists and Methodists and, you know, we got Pentecostals. And anyway, how many different religions are there within the Jewish faith? And what diversity is there of that religion in Israel? When you say religions, you mean sects? I mean, within... yeah, I mean different different strains, different denominations. Oh, I mean, what you and I would call a denomination in America. Uh, kind of, I mean, when I say the Jews, the Chinese, the Russians, I mean, that's so disrespectful to the Jews or the Chinese and the Russians. I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but it is at face. Um, so, so, so what sorts of quote-unquote denominations are there within the Jewish faith in Israel? And even I can't name all of them. I mean, you've got... Reform, reform Judaism, conservative Judaism. What is, what is that? What, what is what is Reform Judaism? <laughs> well, and again, it, I guess it, de- it depends. Reform Jews tend to be uh, much more liberal when it comes to ideas like following, being kosher, following the, the Talmud, which is the rules that the, the Jewish faith, that, for instance, you don't mix dairy and meat, you don't work on the Sabbath, things like that. Um, conservatives might be a little bit more religious tied into those beliefs, Orthodox certainly more so, Hasidics even more than that. You've got modernist Jews who I'm still trying to figure out exactly what what they stand for. There are so many different denominations, if you will, within the Jewish faith. And and how they look at one another is interesting. I mean, an Orthodox Jew would look at me and say, you're not Jewish. You work on the Sabbath and you don't keep kosher and you have only one oven rather than having two so you don't mix uh, the the meats and the dairies together, and and you eat pork, and oh my gosh, how can you do that? Is there an answer? I mean, is is a two state solution that you say? And I mean, I've read a lot about this. It seemed to me, and I think you're onto something. It seemed to me that Saudi Arabia and Israel were making some gains. I mean, they, they were making some progress. I got to believe the people of Saudi Arabia are tired of violence. I know the people of Israel are tired of violence, but Iran is still a primary player, and Iran, you know, activates Hamas, or they're a pro- kind of a proxy of the Iranian. Is that a fair statement? They're a proxy of the Iranian government. They're, they're, yes, they're the Iran is their main supporter. But, 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 Scott, here, here's the thing. I'll, I'll use football as an example. There are very passionate Gamecock fans who will pay whatever it takes to sit on the fifty. Mm-hmm. There are those who will pay a little bit and sit in the upper deck and be quite okay with it. But nobody wants to blow the stadium up. Nobody wants to burn the building down. There's an element within, and I call it Islam as jihadist, and I think that's accurate, that would kill infidels in the name of their faith. How do we address that? Is there a practical answer to that reality? Or is Netanyahu onto something when he says, just kill them until you kill them all? Well, and that's that's the million-dollar question, and I don't. it's really hard to answer that question because whether we're talking about Islamic jihadists whether we're talking about, I mean, we can talk about organizations in the United States that preach hate and are willing to kill. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan historically has been willing to kill individuals. It's really hard to convince those individuals that maybe they're wrong. Um, and in a world where you have so many outlets out there that are willing to preach what you believe and to, if you will, vindicate your beliefs and provide you with an, out, with an outlet to say, aha, other people believe what I believe, so what I believe is okay, and I could continue per- down this road, which in the case of some of these individuals means killing others. Combating that is so difficult. There's always going to be hate out there. Now, you could go out 
and kill all of them. But here's the deal. If you kill all of them, what about their brothers, their sisters, their sons, their daughters, their parents? What you've just done is maybe bred hate in them. Hate breeds hate. I don't know how you solve it. I'm asking a question, and I have no idea the answer to this question. I don't know if this is a valid question, but it's something that runs through my head a lot. Is there a difference in anti-Israel and anti-Jew? I think you can be opposed to a nation and not be opposed to the people of that country. It'd be like saying you're you're anti-United States, but you're not anti-American. Or you're anti-American, but not, but you're really referring to the leadership of the country. Doesn't mean you hate all Americans. So I think you can make the difference. What sort of government does Israel have? Democracy. A democracy, but a democracy that is facing some serious challenges. And a democracy that requires a collaborating of different factions Parties, of government. Yeah. Is that a fair, a little bit yes. parliamentarian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Knesset, yes. Parliament, a parliamentary Explain system. Explain that to our listeners or viewers. Well, I mean, Knesset, you have, it's like the British system, where you have a parliament with individuals who are elected, who help pass laws with the prime minister. We don't have a president, we have a prime minister. Uh, which can, which who has influence over whether those laws are initiated, how they're initiated. Uh, in a parliamentary system, you can have snap elections, which uh, we've seen many times in Israel. Between 2019 and 2022, we had five different elections. Wow. Uh, because they, they could not come to grips, they cannot form a government. You have to have some kind of a coalition. Either If your party in a parliamentary system, if your party does not have enough seats to control that part, to, to control government, then you have to either have to form a coalition with somebody else so you have enough seats to, to form a government or the government collapses and you just start over again. Are there any Arab leaders that you have faith in and trust in that would genuinely work with Jewish leadership or Israeli leadership and come up with some sort of peace solution? You, you've led me to believe you don't trust. You think the situation would be, would be better if someone other than Netanyahu were, were, were leading the Israeli government. But is there an Arab leader that, that you have a little faith in that could see the world in a fundamentally different way and address some of the issues? I would have to think about that a while because I haven't done a lot of research on these individuals. But I, I, I could see, for instance, um, maybe the king of Morocco, someone like that, who could work with these different sides, who I think has a good relationship with the United States and with Israel as well because they do have a normal, they have normalized relations between the two. Uh, there'd be one example right there. Um, and, and to jump back to something that you brought up a minute ago, you said I don't have a lot of faith in Netanyahu, and then that's true. But one thing I should point out, if Benny Gantz, who is Netanyahu's main rival, was in power, and October 7th happened, October 7th Israel time, I would not be surprised if Gantz did the same thing Netanyahu is, do, is doing. Is that, is it, we can debate what we should or should not do, and, and obviously armchair quarterbacking and postmortems are easy for you and I to do. You're a historian. I mean, you evaluate the decisions leaders made throughout world history. I don't know that he had another choice. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, you know, I'm not Netanyahu. I'm not a Jew. I'm not living in Israel. But, but I've seen some of the images, and I don't know that Netanyahu had another choice but to, with every fiber of his being and every arsenal available to Israel, try to root Hamas out of the Gaza or out of the Gaza Strip. I mean, we could talk all day whether a more limited incursion might have done the job, but the anger, the animus was so strong in Israel. The fact that, that 
Benny Gantz and Netanyahu, who are two rivals who do not like one another, were willing to come together in a unity government, even if just temporary, a unity government to deal with this threat, I think demonstrates how strong the anger was, how much the desire was to root out Hamas once and for all. I do believe, and I know there are those Israelis who are very dismayed by the, the civilian deaths that are taking place who wish that wasn't happening. Um, and I wish it wasn't happening. The problem we have here is that Hamas historically has been more than willing to use human beings as shields, to use innocent civilians as human shields. And unfortunately, that means there are civilians who are going to die. And I hate that. It, I really hate it because I fear it's going to push some of those individuals into the arms of Hamas. Was October 7 genocide? I would say what, the, what Hamas wants to do is to achieve genocide. But we have to bear in mind that Hamas didn't care who it killed. It was out to get Jews, but it also killed Palestinians. It killed foreigners who were not Jewish. Hamas did not give a darn who it was killing, um, and they haven't. What they are out is to achieve the destruction of the Jewish state. Yes, if that means killing all the Jews, I think they're more than prepared to do that. But if that means killing others in the process, they don't care. Does it concern you in any way, shape, or form? I mean, I, I get the, the anti-Jewish sentiment in America. I'm not calling it anti-Semitism. I, I get the anti-Israel. There are some in America that believe Israel is taken for granted. The support America has given it. Um, you've led me to believe at times you kind of accept that that theory as, as reasonable. And, and I'll get there in a second. I, I, I'll accept the, the pro-Palestinian. But, but there were Americans on college campuses that were celebrating Hamas. Yes. That's disgusting. It really bothers the heck out of me. You're a college professor. You're, you're trying to create, uh, you know, I mean, you're trying, you're, I'm not, you're not trying to, you're not trying to indoctrinate young men and women. I know you will have. I've sat in on a couple of Scott Kaufman's classes and very professional, very measured. Um, I think it's appropriate time to share the story. You were in college and a professor tried to indoctrinate and it had a lasting impression on yes, you did. and how you teach kids. Yes, it infuriated me. And I consider it very important to make sure that my students hear both sides of the issue. Even if I don't necessarily agree with the other side, I think they should be at least aware of the other viewpoint. So where is the pro-Hamas sentiment coming from? And that's the question. And that I don't understand. I don't get where it's coming from. Um, I don't know if these are individuals who, who for some reason believe that all people should be treated equally and so uh, it's wrong to go out and root out Hamas because you're killing human beings. I don't know if these are individuals who are hearing information from just one source and not looking at the bigger picture, who don't have an understanding of their history, who don't have an understanding of of. Judaism, of Islam, I wish I knew it was driving them. Um, and what's really unfortunate is all this does is it feeds into those individuals. It gives ammunition to those individuals who say, aha, here's proof right here that professors are going out and indoctrinating our students. That is not what we're supposed to be doing. That's certainly not what I'm doing. And that's not what the, what the historians I know are doing. 
but all that does is it feeds that fuel, it feeds that fire. And I wish that these students understood these were individuals who went into Israel who engaged in and this it was compared to ISIS beheading individuals, killing babies, killing um, uh, pregnant mothers, killing anybody who was in the way, whether they were Jewish or not. I mean, these are terrorists. These are true terrorists. And to celebrate them, to celebrate that kind of killing is disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. How concerned are you that American support is waning and how less secure is Israel without American support? I think there's still a lot of American support for Israel out there. Um, is but, the but, support geopolitical or biblically adhering? Oh, I think it's, I think it's a combination of okay. things. Geopolitical, it's biblical, it's historical. Um, there's all kinds of connections there. Uh, it does worry me that you do have individuals out there who want to condemn Israel, to end our relationship with Israel because of what Israel is doing. Look, I am, I, I, I've been critical of Israel. I've been critical of Netanyahu. I wish that I, I really am up concerned about the number of civilian deaths that are taking place right now. But to say that Israel has no right of self-defense or to suggest that, to suggest that Israel should just go, well, 1,400 people died, so what, big deal, let's move on. I mean, as much as I don't like Netanyahu, I agree with him. This was their 9-11. Think how angry the American people were after 9-11. Was it 9-11 or the Holocaust? Well, he talked about it's, the Holocaust it, it, as it well. It reminds me more of the damn Holocaust well, than it, it does 9-11. You, you can't. I mean, and he talked about that as well, and I would agree with that too. Um, but the reason I use 9-11 is that's something that many of us remember. We're old enough to remember 9-11. Many of those individuals who were alive at the Holocaust are no longer here, who, who might remember it. But 9-11, you don't have to be that old to remember 9-11 and how that brought this country together and how determined we were to strike back. Well, for Israelis, this was their 9-11. And certainly, you can draw a connection to the Holocaust as well because this group, this organization, wants to wipe Jews off the map, or certainly Israel off the map. Um, so to, to go out and say, well, Hamas was in the right to do what it did, good heavens. I, I mean, even if you argue that, is, that the Israelis were not treating the Palestinians fairly, and, and then there's evidence for that. I mean, you can make, you can make a case for that. Does that justify the massacre of 1,400 individuals, innocent people who were not doing anything, who are minding their own businesses, and who are killed in a way similar to what ISIS was doing? Really? That I have a lot of trouble with. Does the non-interventionist streak in the Republican Party today concern you as a Jew? It does, although I think that, there, that, that when it comes to Israel— there still remains a lot of support you for Israel. You sense that exclusivity. I mean, you, you, you sense that, okay, there's one party in America today that's kind of falling out of graces, or neoconservatism is falling out of good graces with the Republicans. There's no doubt about that. You know that. I mean, you read, you study, you learn, you understand. But but I do believe that you're right. Despite that anti-intervention streak within the Republican Party, the majority have this adherence to a biblical worldview. The, the Judeo-Christian ethic, and will always figure out a way to be there 
for Israel. And I want to ask you this again. You don't work at the Pentagon, I don't. How less secure is Israel if America takes a pass in supplementing or subsidizing some of its national defense? Far less secure. Now, I don't want to say that Israel would not be insecure. Israel has, we believe, we have very strong reason to believe that Israel has about 150 nuclear weapons. We know they have a nuclear program. They probably have 150 nuclear weapons. They have the Iron Dome, but they rely upon us to provide them a lot of that assistance. They rely upon us to provide a lot of the monetary assistance to purchase the weapons and to build the weapons they need. So without us, that would be a major blow for Israel. And I can tell you as someone who studied the negotiations between the United States and Israel, especially in the 1970s, when there was talk of cutting aid to Israel, which there was more than once, that talk did not last very long because we realized if we cut that aid to Israel, Israel is in serious, serious trouble. Does it concern you, and we're getting political here for a second, but you mentioned earlier about the American energy independence and the evolution of uh, you know, less carbon-based power for, for the economy. A, a lot of us believe, and, and, and once again, my, my adherence to a biblical worldview remains a, a big part of my support of Israel, but but. In, in prior generations, it was about the Strait of Hormuz and the free flow of oil and, you know, making sure we, we have carbon-based energy to power our economy. Does it concern you or should we be worried that as oil becomes less important, Israel's security declines? No, because we still have those historical connections and the fact that Israel is located in a very important part of the world, on the coast of the Mediterranean and a part of the world where we want to have a lot of influence. And given that we are entering, as far as I'm concerned, a second Cold War with the Russians, where we don't want to see the Russians spread their influence into that part of the world, where we want to maintain that influence, that gives us all the more reason to maintain those ties with Israel, and certainly to try as best we can to increase those ties with other countries in the Middle East. Let's go there one second. You mentioned Iran a second ago. Does the relationship Iran has with China cause you concern? Yes. Uh, China is becoming a major contender on the world stage with the United States. The China, now, the Chinese historically have tried to spread their influence since at least the 1950s. They tried to spread their influence in the third world. Um, there was a time, of course, where we had a very good relationship with the Chinese, but that relationship has been deteriorating, and the Chinese have been trying to spread their influence. And, and the fact that, they are, that they're willing to help the Iranians— uh, does very much concern me, just as the Russians are willing to help the Iranians. That concerns me because that gives Iran two major sponsors that it can use to continue doing what it's doing. You mentioned the Cold War. There are some out there that believe the only way to address the issue of Islamic jihadist and terrorism with Hamas and Hezbollah is to cut the head off the snake, that's the head being Iran. Is there any scenario you imagine where America, Israel, Israel, NATO, the NATO nations attack Iran. Isn't that, that the escalation that concerns everybody in the world? That is, and I think there would have to be very clear evidence of Iranian, direct Iranian involvement in any kind of attack that the United States sees as a direct threat to itself or its interests. Here's the rub. And this is from someone who's done a lot of research into this. If we were to attack Iran, we're talking about a country that has that's, that's large in size, 
that has a bigger population than Iraq had and that has a nuclear program, a nuclear program that is largely underground and spread out around the country. One estimate is that if we were to use our bunker-busting bombs and hit Iran's nuclear capabilities, their, their nuclear program, and damage or destroy it, that Iran could be up and running again within five years. So that would mean having to go in again and again and again, or it would require us to actually occupy Iran. Are we prepared to do that? That is a big ask. Last question. How prophetic are, are the things happening today? How, I mean, it, it, yeah, the Bible's full of prophecy. I mean, you, you're, you're a Jew, you're an Old Testament guy, I believe in the sequel. You know, I'm the Christian that believes that Jesus was a Savior. Uh, I, we, we have a mutual and, and respectful disagreement there. Um, but there's no doubt that the Judeo-Christian ethic has changed the world. I mean, there, there's no question about that. Human dignity. I mean, the air of enlightenment and, and the effect it had on the impact it had on the Western world, the government kind of leading that charge there. But, but I mean, is, is there a bit of you as a Jew and someone who has studied this part of the world and the adherence to biblical worldview, is there any bit of this that reeks into the prophecy? I mean, concerns about, if we're talking about concerns about Armageddon, there is a little bit there. Don't we uh, have to put that on the table? Well, I think that I, I'm hoping that enough of us maintain enough cool heads that we don't get there. Um, but there certainly is the concern that this could turn into a much wider war. A war that could, I hope not, but a war that could pit, if you will, the Judeo-Christian world against the Arab world. My hope is, number one, that doesn't happen. But that number two, if things begin to start heading down that, down that direction, that there will be enough cool heads on all sides to say, pause. That even some of those Muslim nations that maybe say this is an attack upon Islam will say, hold on a second. Are we going to war with, by going to war with the United States and Israel, are we helping Islam or are we helping Iran and, its sponsor, and, the, and the groups it sponsors? I really hope that we don't head down that direction. I'm going to maintain my optimistic point of view that that doesn't happen. But I am concerned. I mean, as you know, as many of the people who are watching this, listening to this know, we just had an attack against Israel from Houthi rebels in Yemen who are sponsored by Iran. Could Yemen get involved in this? Could Israel invade Lebanon? What would that mean? What if Israel does attack Iran? Those are the things that worry me. I'm hoping we don't head down that direction. Don't you perceive China to be a big part of this? Yes, but I'm hoping the Chinese also realize they don't want to go that, down that direction. Because keep in mind, as much as the Chinese want to have influence around the world, they're not stupid. They want military influence, but they want economic influence. And the last thing they need to do is shake things up on the world economic stage that could cause them all kinds of troubles. They're already having economic troubles. They don't need more. I, I, asked, I said last question. I lied. I'm going to ask you another <laughs> question. There are some in my camp that believe America's in decline. $33 trillion in debt, um, a, a very divided government, um, a, a lot of animus, you know, one group of people has toward another group of people. How much more dangerous is the world, Israel included, 
if America is in decline? I think it's a much more dangerous world. Um, look, the United States cannot be the world's policeman. We just don't have the Has ability to Has it tried to, to be that for too long and too many times? I think so. Okay. Um, but we are in a situation right now where there's real threats out there. Uh, and the United States has placed its credibility at stake. Ukraine's an example of that. So we have commitments out there that I think we need to make and need to maintain. Um, I know there are people who disagree with me on that. What concerns me is if the United States does go in decline, if we begin saying that we're going to have to, we can, we're going to have to revert to isolationism and we can't help these other countries and help these other peoples, what does that mean for the future of America and its interests? Uh, what does that mean for the future of Israel? What does that mean for the future of, of the Philippines, of Vietnam? I know those aren't exact. I know Vietnam, we're not talking about a, 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 a democratic nation, but we are talking about a nation that has been moving in the more capitalist direction that we see as a potential ally. What does that mean for our allies in Europe? I mean, what is going to ultimately happen there if the United States begins to say, we're not worried about you guys? That opens up a lot of doors for potential enemies. Um, Dwight Eisenhower once warned of the United States becoming a garrison state. Explain that. What he argued was that if the United States were to sit back and allow at that time communism to spread around the world so that the United States found itself isolated, we would be placed in a position where we would have to start rationing what we have, ration oil, ration food, ration other resources. Well, that rationing would require us to impose really a dictatorial system upon this country. Goodbye democracy, hello dictatorship. We need to maintain those ties with other nations, nations that provide us resources, nations that provide us markets, nations that are geopolitical, geostrategic allies. And if we begin to pull back from that, and nations that are a threat to the United States begin to gain more and more influence around the world, what does that mean for the United States? What does that mean for its economy? What does it mean for its people? What does it mean for its democracy? Would we have to move toward a garrison state? I think Eisenhower was on to something. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Scott Kaufman, history uh, professor at Francis Marion University. Um, and, and, and I had tricked myself into believing that I was somewhat familiar with uh, what's going on in that part of the world. I knew he would show me that I know so very little about what's happening there in the historical context. Uh, thanks a lot for watching and listening.